this morning. You'll notice that we've, we've skipped a little bit. Um, I was, took some time this week and was, was looking and decided to, to skip ahead a little bit into chapter 15. And if you look at your bulletin there, you'll see that we have verses uh, 1 through 28 of chapter uh, 15 uh, laid out. But um, I actually don't think that we're going to, to read all of those this morning. But I would encourage you, uh, in your time at home, to go back and read the entirety of the chapter of 15. Um, where we are in Samuel is, is here. We have, we have had the people demand a king like the other nations have. And so God has given them a king like the other nations have. They've, he's given them this king in Saul. And Saul, on outward appearances, looks like the perfect king. He's tall, he's handsome, he's a good military leader, he sort of has the gravitas that you want in a king. But what we're going to see today, we've already seen a little bit, but what becomes incredibly evident here in chapter 15 is that while Saul may have all of the outward appearances of a king, Saul does not carry what he needs inwardly to be a king after God's own heart. And so what we're going to see here in chapter 15 is that before this chapter is over, Saul's kingship is going to be ripped away from him. Now, the, the, the working that out in the real world takes the rest of Saul's life. But that what happens is the kingship is ripped away from Saul and he will be seen from this point forward as an enemy of God. And so we find ourselves here in chapter 15 and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize the first 20 or so verses instead of us reading them together because it's a lot. And so the first 20 or so verses goes like this. The Amalekites are at it again. And so God decides that it's finally time, once and for all, for the Amalekites to be taken care of. And so he goes to Samuel, and he has Samuel go to Saul with very specific instructions. March out against the Amalekites and take care of all of them. Crush them destroy them, kill their flocks, kill their herds, kill them, wipe them out because of their continued rebellion and iniquity. And so Saul marches out to battle. And he basically does it, except a couple of things. One, he does not kill Agog, the king of the Amalekites. And the second thing is he keeps the best flocks and herds for himself. And then begins a celebration. And so Samuel hears about this and hears that God's word has not been carried out. And so Samuel comes to Saul and Samuel confronts Saul... 
we'll pick up right here. Now, right now, we'll pick up in verse 13. I know I said through 20, but we're going to pick up in verse 13. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel replied, Then what is this sound of sheep and goats and cattle I hear? Now we're going to jump ahead to verse 20. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like the wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command in your words because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so that I can worship the Lord. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor, who is better than you. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear precious God, as we come before you this morning, we, we are clear that we need to obey you. So God, I pray that as we open your word today, as we study about Saul and Samuel, that you would stir up in us a desire to obey you in all things, in every aspect of our lives, to follow you 100%, not 90 or even 99. So God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So God has instructed Paul, Saul, excuse me, instructed Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. And this is one of those passages that I think for some of us, we can get a little uh, squishy on. It makes us uncomfortable, right, to read that God tells someone to destroy every man, woman, and child, every sheep, every goat, every cattle, every chicken, everything. And so we have to ask ourselves, maybe we ask ourselves this question, why? Why did God give this instruction to Saul? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the Amalekites have shown themselves over and over and over again to be enemies of God and God's justice. The Amalekites have been, since the entry of God's people into the Promised Land, among the worst, most violent, and most oppressive of all of their neighbors. They have carried out continuous wars, and raids, pillagings. They have killed people with no cause. They have continued 
to flaunt God's justice. God's justice that is revealed not simply in God's Word, but God's justice that is revealed naturally in the natural law and in the natural order of things. They are, in fact, very bad people. And so what we see here actually is God meeting out justice. And it makes us uncomfortable and we don't like it and we read it, but we have to understand that what is coming here is justice. And if you read Scripture, and if you read Scripture all the way to the end, there will come another time when God in the future, when God will mete out His justice upon those who are His enemies. Upon those who are His enemies because they have failed to obey His commands, have failed to live the way that He has called them to live, and have failed to honor His justice. You know, this is not a war of conquest. In fact, some of the instructions that Saul gets are specifically so it can never be claimed that this was a war of This was not a war so that Israel could have a little elbow room. This was not a war so that Israel could get richer. This was not a war so that Saul's status could be lifted up. This was a war to carry out God's justice. See, Saul was not to enrich himself. He was not to expand his empire. He was to be God's instrument. And in fact, he was forbidden from growing rich off of this. He was forbidden from from carrying out some of the things that he was forbidden to do because those were the very things that had brought the Amalekites under judgment from God. Getting rich through violence and oppression. And so... And there's a whole lot more. I mean, there have been entire books that have been written about this. But, but let, us, let us stay here. Let us, let us at least acknowledge this one thing. God gave Saul very specific instructions. Whether we are comfortable with those instructions in the year 2023 or not, he was given very specific instructions. And there was no question as to whether or not those instructions came from and were the Word of God. So what happens is he goes out and he carries out these instructions. Kinda. As I mentioned earlier, what he has done is he leaves Agag, the Amalekite king, alive, as well as the very best of the flocks and the herds. And so what Saul has done, in fact, is a direct contradiction not only of God's divine command to do things a specific way, but in doing the things that he has done, in violating his command in a specific way, he's done the exact thing that God has not wanted him to do. He's made it all about himself. See, the reason that you would keep a foreign king alive after you have defeated him in battle is so that you could carry him back to your palace, put him in chains, and when your friends came over, trot him out as after-dinner entertainment. Look at how wonderful I am. Look at all of these kings that I have in my prison. In fact, I have all of these kings in my prison so that you could, in fact, say that I am the king of kings. 
Now, is that a title that we recognize? Is that a title that should apply to anyone other than God? And yet, in keeping Agag alive, this is what Saul is doing. In, in, in keeping the flocks alive, what has he done? He's increased his own wealth and his own status. Even if, even if he is sincere, and there is no reason to believe that he is sincere in what he says later, that are, well, we kept him alive for the sacrifice. If I go into your yard and I take your chicken and I go home and, and eat it and serve it, have I given up anything as a host? It's not a sacrifice, is it? If Saul goes and takes the herds and the flocks of the Amalekites and he offers those up, that's not a sacrifice. The whole purpose of a sacrifice, right, is that you are sacrificing something. You are giving something up. And so what Saul, in doing this, what Saul does is he is working to create and elevate his status. And so not only has he disobeyed God, but he has disobeyed God in such a way to directly contradict why God told him to do what he did, the way that he told him to do it, he's done it to make himself look better and to increase his own status, to increase his own glory. And guess what? When we increase our own status and we fight for our own glory, we are fighting to take it away from God. And then there's this, just, I love it. I mean, it's so snarky. But Samuel shows up, and Saul's like, I mean, literally, I mean, literally, the evidence of what Saul has done is around him. I mean, he is in the middle of a party. And he comes in, and he sees him, and he's like, oh, oh, I, I did exactly what I was told to do. It was, it's almost kind of like, you know, when you catch a little kid, and they've got crumbs all over their shirt, and their cheeks are all puffed out. And, hey, buddy, did you eat a cookie? I didn't have a cookie. I mean, Saul's been caught with his hand in the cookie jar. And, it's, and, and, you know, and he's trying to say, no, no, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. I, I did exactly what I was supposed to. And Samuel goes, well, then what do I hear? I mean, you don't even have the good common decency to keep the flocks that you've stolen on the other side of the hill. You're, you're right here with it. You're close enough that I can hear them. You know, and brothers and sisters, we can look at this and we can sort of laugh at Saul, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, this is a really ridiculous scene. And we can laugh at Saul, but we're not off the hook here. You know, too many of us show up to worship every weekend thinking that all is right between us and God. We sing songs and we read the Bible and we tell everyone how great we are and how great our relationship with God is. We come to the table and we take the Lord's Supper and the evidence of our disobedience is all around us. And I want to be clear. We are all hypocrites from time to time. If you ever invite someone to church and they say, oh, I can't go to church, it's full of hypocrites, your response should always be, oh, we're not full. We always have room for one more. I mean, we are all Hypocrites, from time to time. But it's what we do next. It's what we do when we're challenged. It's what we do when our hypocrisy is shown to us 
that is the real test. So do we repent and do we turn back to God, or do we run further and further down a road and make it harder and harder to come back? See, Saul is all about making a name for himself. He's all about building his kingdom and his stature and his glory. And when he's confronted with it, he doubles down. He doesn't repent. He doubles down. And this is when we get to this, this, this passage, right, where, where, where verses 22 and 23, where Samuel is, is calling Saul out, when he's pointing out to Saul what has happened, what his real problem is. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. And so we see here, right, that God, God can take our sacrifices, just like Micah said earlier today, right? God, God, you know, God tells us to sacrifice. God tells us to worship him. But if the choice is worshiping him in empty form, going through the motions, or having a contrite, obedient, repentant heart, God makes it clear over and over again which of those he wants. And it's not the form. And it's not the ritual. And it's not the sacrifice. And it's not the, the smoke coming up to him. It's the obedience. But, but then Samuel continues, right? I mean, he doesn't just stop here. He doesn't just say, look, you can say you wanted it for sacrifice all you wanted to, but you're disobeying God, and God wants your obedience, not your sacrifice. But Samuel keeps pushing there in verse 23. For rebellion, and let's not misunderstand here, a failure to obey is rebellion. For rebellion, for a failure to obey, is like the sin of divination. That can be hard for us. Well, what does he mean? if you go back and you read in through the Old Testament, divination is definitely seen as playing with idols and spiritual forces that are not of God. That in fact, ultimately, divination is about the worship, not of God, but of Satan. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and deviance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. See, it's, it's clear that what's going on here is that Saul has let go of God and embraced something, someone else. What Samuel is reminding Saul, what the text is reminding us, is that what thrills God is a heart that obeys him. What, what, what God wants more than anything else is a surrendered heart. You know, I think most of us are really good at giving God 90% obedience. I think, I think we hit... 
94%, I think we hit it like it's going out of style. I think we're really good at that. And 90 is great, right? I mean, in a lot of places, a 90 is an A. An A is good, right? 90 is great. And I'm hitting it out of the... Man, if, if I had had a class where I made 90s or better on everything, I would have thought I was hitting it out of the park. We're really good at 90% obedience. The problem is, is that other 10%, right? This, this other area where, where we don't give everything over. See, this is, this is the rebellion, the ultimate rebellion. This is the original rebellion. This is the rebellion of Satan against God. This is the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God. Is I'm going to obey you as long as it's good and convenient for me. As long as I like it, sure, I'll obey you. But when it gets tough, when I don't like it, when it makes me uncomfortable, when it gets in the way of what I want, well, I won't. But I'm going to be at 90%, so we're going to be good, right? This is, this is what's happening here, right? I mean, I, mean, I mean, rebellion against God is this desire to demand autonomy so that we can circumvent the aspects of God's commands that we find offensive, that we find offensive. Remember what the fruit that Adam and Eve eat is, right? It's the fruit of the knowledge of what? the tree of good and evil. It was Adam and Eve deciding that they could figure out what was right and wrong. That was the temptation. We have this idea, I think, sometimes that sin is wicked because of what sin is. Right? That, that, that sin is wicked because of what a person does. Somebody kills somebody and that's that's wicked because murder is wrong. But, but sin is wicked not because of what a person does, but because of the authority that a person rejects. When they reject God, that's the wickedness. And so what we see here in Saul right, is he's confronted, he has this opportunity to, to return, he has this opportunity to repent. There's, there's a moment here where the door is open for Saul. You know, we will, we will, at some point, we will get to the story that's in 2 Samuel, right, of David and Bathsheba and Nathan's confrontation of David. So it's a not altogether different story. And what we see here is two options. You could do what David does, a man after God's own heart, in true repentance. Or you can do what Saul does and go through the motions to preserve his respectability. See, repentance entails a change, but we never see a change in Saul. In fact, what we see from this moment through the end of 1 Samuel when Saul dies is Saul just continuing in a downward spiral. See, 
he tells, he tells Samuel, oh, yeah, sure, I, I, I repent and, and, and return with me so that I can worship the Lord. But what, what Saul doesn't want, he doesn't want to worship the Lord because the Lord is good and deserving of our worship. He wants to worship the Lord because he wants this big ceremony to continue to aggrandize him, and he can't do it without Samuel present. And so he, he gives Samuel the words that he wants to hear so that Samuel will go with him and give Saul what Saul wants, which is his status. He is still concerned about his status. Again, I, I think far too many of us think along these same lines. I think many of us are more worried about being caught in our sin than we are about the flagrance of our offense before God. I think many of us would, would be embarrassed if our sin was exposed, but then we completely ignore the fact that the person most offended, the person most involved, the person most aggrieved by our sin, God himself already sees and knows our sin completely. We care more about what others think of us than what God thinks of us. And again, we're going to see Saul held up against David. And far be it from me or anyone to say that David was a perfect king. But what David does know how to do is repent. What David does know how to do is, is to understand that, that repentance is about God's kingdom and, and not his own. So what we see here is we see five Five things, real quick, five things about disobedience. The first is this. Disobedience is anything less than full and immediate obedience. Disobedience is anything less than full and immediate obedience. You know, we, we, we try and, 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 and not follow everything we're supposed to do, and then we try and cover it up. We try and pay God off. We, we labor under this delusion that we have the right to retain control over our own lives. See, we want to obey God on our terms, and terms that mean partial and delayed or conditional obedience. But that all just means disobedience. And so disobedience is anything less than full and immediate obedience. Disobedience also, second, disobedience grows out of a greedy desire. You know, sin always grows out of some deep soul dissatisfaction in us. Something deep down inside of us that, that, that we think that if we have this thing, we'll be happy and we'll be secure. Maybe it's money, maybe it's status, maybe it's sex, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's drugs, but no matter what it is, there's something inside of us that is unhappy, and we think if we reach out and grab this other thing, it will make us happy. We have this desire. But our real problem, like Saul's, is that our soul is not content in its possession of God. Our idolatrous and greedy desire for other things fuels our disobedience, and until we dispose those false kings and idols, we'll never be able to surrender to God. Third, disobedience further estranges us from God, leading to increasingly irrational behavior. 
we're going to see this. Saul just goes into this tailspin through the rest of 1 Samuel. But, but that happens to us, right? Doesn't criticism shake us and completely unsettle us? Jealousy can consume our thoughts. Being compared unfavorably with others sends us into despair. We can begin to behave ir- irrationally when we are estranged from God. Fourth, disobedience can only be overcome by the gospel. Samuel here has reminded Saul that God made him king when he had previously, when Saul previously had been a nobody. It's this beautiful Old Testament picture of the gospel. Saul should have responded in gratitude because of God's amazing grace. He should have allowed the value of God's gift to him to break the captivating power of sin over his life, but he hardened his heart. Finally, disobedience exposed creates a choice, either self-deception or repentance. As we come to the table this morning, this is an important thing for each of us to consider. Are we self-deceived or are we repentant? Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians what happens if we come to the table and we are self-deceived and not repentant. That we eat and drink condemnation upon ourselves. And so today, as we, as we come to this table, God does not want us to bring our rationalizations. He wants us to bring our repentance. As we come to this table, God does not want our sacrifice. The table reminds us that the sacrifice is done. And so God doesn't want our sacrifice. He wants our submission. The choice passed Paul. Saul. But it did not, has not yet passed us. This choice between self-deception and repentance, between death and life, stands before each of us. And as we come to the table, it is a time for us to consider. We come now to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, given to us to celebrate in memory of our Christ, our Lord's broken body and spilled blood. On the night that he was betrayed, Christ took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Likewise, after the meal, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood, shed for you. We come to this table as a testimony to what God has done. If our deacons would like to begin coming forward. As I forward, it's important for me to remind you of something. This is not my table. This is not Fairmont First Baptist's table. This table belongs to God. And just as we are to consider, as it says in Corinthians, whether or not we are worthy, whether we are in self-deception or in repentance, It is that that determines whether or not we can come to the table. As we come together today, I wish for us to recite the Nicene Creed. It will be on the screen as a testimony.